Adam Hergenrother. This is Business Meets Spirituality. We believe in personal growth through business success. Today, I'm joined by my chief of staff, Hallie Warner. Hallie, how are you? Good. Jumping into a wonderful conversation today. We're going to switch gears a little bit and get focused a little bit more on the business side today. Um, I think it's a really, really relevant one for all of our audience to listen to because the number one question that Hallie gets, that I get, that pretty much anybody living in the United States gets right now is, what is going on in real estate? I mean, it's forget about whether or not you're actually in real estate. It's just a topic of conversation right now, right? It's people want to know. And so this episode is dedicated to answering four major questions. We're going to have fun. Um, there will be some slides that can be provided. If you want to see this data, if you go into the show notes, we can provide it to you, but there's four major questions. I want people to take away from this. Number one is, is there going to be a bubble? A bubble just means, you know, if you, you have kids or whatever, you blow a bubble at some point it pops, right? So the people are saying, is this 2008 again? Is this 2006 again? Like, is it the run up? And so I want to explain, not from my personal opinion, more from just using facts and figures as to what's leading to the most likely conclusion. Certainly don't have a crystal ball, but we want to use facts and figures that um, we've pulled together for this presentation uh, to, to really discuss, is there going to be a real estate bubble? Why or why not? Number two, we want to kind of highlight um, how are interest rates playing into uh, whether or not we're going to have a bubble or not? And more importantly, what are interest rates doing in terms of the affordability of housing? And so I want to bring that into what is it, how are interest rates playing? And I want to answer the question for people listening out there is like, because we hear this a lot, and we'll, we'll, we'll dive into it is, I just want to wait until prices come down. So I want to answer that question. Is that the right thing to actually do? Number three, um, you know, why are, why are prices growing dramatically? And we're going to break down home sales and new construction. Again, we're not going to give a whole bunch of figures, but we're going to give some kind of, I just want to, I want you to be able to take these points away to speak edu uh, educationally on this or to be able to just have a, an understanding. You can dig deeper into it. Number four, um, why is there no supply? And we want to kind of dove into that. So um, let's jump in. The first topic I want to kind of talk about today is inflation and people hear this. It's in every news feed right now is about real estate. And then the next kind of line is this inflation. Inflation plays a really critical role when we're kind of looking at whether or not there's going to be a bubble and we look at interest rates and supply and, you know, why are prices going up? So number one, I just want to refer, read you the definition of inflation. Inflation refers to an environment of generally rising prices of goods and services within our economy. As general prices rise, the purchasing power of the consumer decreases. Let me give you an example. So 1.7%, this of, inf of inflation of 1.7%, this means that a product bought today for about 100 US dollars will cost about $101.70. So that means essentially, if you kind of take that out, what inflation means is that as inflation rises, your dollar is worth less to buy consumer products. So if you want to go out and buy, you know, groceries, you want to go out and buy a stereo, you want to go out and buy a Mac, as inflation increases, your dollar is no longer worth as much anymore. And that's why it's something that people have to pay attention to. And that's why you ever, anything about the Fed meeting, the number one thing they're looking at is inflation. Because what they do is they don't want inflation to increase at a level more than 2%. If it starts to get above 2%, um, or even getting up into higher than that, the Fed, and this is important, the Fed will then start to r raise interest rates, which is their lever, right? They're sitting back there and they're saying, okay, we're, it's, you always hear about the Fed's watching inflation, watching inflation. I just kind of want to explain it in layman's terms. It just basically means that if inflation increases too fast, particularly because of wage growth, meaning that you're earning, your income is not keeping up with inflation, then you're losing buying power. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then so the 1.7%, that's the estimated average inflation for 2021. Yeah. So the, the 2019 average inflation was 2.3%. The 2020, that's why in 2019, we heard a lot of people saying, are they going to raise interest rates? Are they going to raise interest rates? Are they going to raise interest rates? It was all tied into that inflation number. But they still stayed low. They did because we hit into kind of COVID and then all of a sudden we, they dropped rates even more, but in 2020, or they remained rates where they, where they were in 2020, the average inflation was 1.4%. And they're estimating about 1.7%. So again, again, that's why every time the Fed meets, they're saying, we're not worried about inflation right now. Um, we are keeping interest rates where they are, 
because inflation seems to be in check. Now, of course, every quarter that could that could change as the Fed meets, but I just want people to understand really what inflation is. All just the big word sometimes, inflation, what is it? All it means is that a dollar today, if inflation rises at 3%, means that you're now cost you a dollar three cents to buy the same product. So what you bought today is going to increase based on what inflation increases. And so that's what people just need to watch for that. Does that make sense, Sally? Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. Because that's important because it's going to drive a lot of other things that are in there. Um, so after you kind of understand inflation, I want to talk about income because there's a lot of, of conversation around there of what does income really look like right now? Meaning like are people's wages increasing? Um, you're hearing, you know, mixed results from this. And so if we look at the act, actually the job market, right. Um, and we look at consistent wage gains compared to 2000 to 2012, which experienced basically a negative 4% to a 1% income growth. So anyways, basically negative four growth to 1%. But let me just bring this down to some very basic numbers so you can understand here. The household income, the household average income, and I'll explain the difference between average and median because it's important to understand. But so just based on looking at income in the US, in 2019, the household income was $89,930. So that's the average. And that's usually, remember, that's household, Hallie. So that'd be like you and Bill, you and your partner, or even you and your partner and your son or your daughter who's living there earning money. They look at that whole, that's a household income. Mm -hmm. So remember, that's what it is. And remember, the average takes all the people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and all the people who are not really making much money at all. And they kind of average that out, right? So that's the average of what uh, household income. The median income, by the way, in 2020 was 68400 And the reason why it's interesting to look at the median income is because they basically throw out the outliers. And they're basically what they're saying is 50% of people made less than $68,000 a year and 50% of people made more than $68,000 a year. So when you're kind of just hearing this, if you're curious about where people's incomes are for household income, um, it actually rose in 2020 to $97,900. So it, people's household income increased $10,000. Well, one of those reasons why was the government started hitting their ATM machine, printing dollars. So people started, started making and getting this stimulus of money put in there, which they couldn't really spend. Uh, and even if they did spend, it wouldn't factor in here because this is just income. It's not talking about expenditures. So that's one of the reasons. So during all of COVID, so I just want people to hear this during all of COVID, well, all of it in 2020, which mm -hmm. is the, the biggest consumer of their household income rose $10,000. So it's pretty interesting, right? So that, it, and this is indicating buying power, spending power. Yeah. I mean, you can apply for more credit when you have $10,000 more, so you can go out and buy things on credit more. You can, you, you start spending more money on, on discretionary spending of massages to clothing or anything else that you want to do to trips, but people's income increased $10,000 last year, which I think is just really interesting to kind of look at considering. I think a lot of people were under the impression that, you know, it, it went the other way, mm -hmm. but that's not what the figures show us right now, which is kind of interesting. So unemployment. So we talked about obviously, you know, inflation, we, we've kind of summarized people's household income in there. What is, where's unemployment? Because I, there's a lot of staggering different numbers that talk about unemployment. Um, I think really a couple key things here, and I'm just going to kind of explain this from a kindergarten standpoint, because I don't think everyone truly understands how the, um, how people, uh, the census and, and, and the federal government defines unemployment for number one. So people that are, that have jobs are considered employed. Right. So people that have jobs are actually employed. People who are jobless looking for a job and are available for work are considered unemployed. Right. So the labor force is made up of the employed and the unemployed. That's what people take away from this. What's really interesting, though, is that people who are neither employed or, or unemployed are not in the labor force. So think about how many independent contractors there are out there, how many small business owners there are out there. Those people are actually not included in that labor force number. Which Wait, I, or I was going to say people who are just not or unemployed and not looking for work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But think about just how many small businesses and independent contractors there are. Right. From just not only in real estate and mortgage and in handyman services and, you know, and cleaning. I mean, all of these things, there's tons of independent contractors. So what's really interesting about the unemployment numbers is to really 
understand some metrics from those things and what is considered the labor force. So remember that is people that are actually employed or people that are unemployed that are actively looking, right? And that kind of makes up the labor force. And that's how they determine these numbers. So when you hear people talking about, you know, un unemployment, um, I just want you to understand that it does not include small business owners and independent contractors or people like Hallie said that are just not actually in there. So 2019, the, the unemployment's been this roller coaster, which is pretty interesting. In 2019, it was 3.6% was the, was the final unemployment number. Okay. 3.6%. At the end of 2020, it was 6.7%, right? So it obviously increased about 3%. What's fascinating though, is in 2020, in April of 2020, we reached almost 15% unemployment rate. So it's actually trending dramatically back down. So, and I think you always want to be like around the 5%. Yeah. 6% is, is five to 6% is considered basically a healthy labor force. So we're not, we're only 0.7% above that. In in fact, you know, if we look at the first quarter of 2021, we likely see that unemployment rate, um, you know, down even further, uh, um, based on hospitality coming back into play. I think there's a lot of sectors trying to add jobs back right now that, that ditched a lot of those. So just understand employment it basically went on a roller coaster last year, but it's trending back down to really a healthy labor market. Um, at the end of 2019, it was, it was 3.6% end of 2020 was 6.7%. So now that we've covered kind of unemployment. Let's look at home ownership. Right. Because everyone wants to talk like, you know, um, and there's a couple of key things I want people to take away from this. But what is the rate of home ownership? Let's look at that over the decade. This is nationwide. So it's really fascinating to look at home ownership has actually been on a, a steady decline from about as high as 67 percent in 2008. Again, right before everything kind of crashed to a low of 64 percent in 2018. So from 2008 to basically for the decade of 28. 2008 to 2018, there's basically been a decline in home ownership. But what's fascinating is it's starting to creep back up to almost 66% at the end of 2020. So again, we have all these kind of expectations when in March, when COVID hit, like what's going to happen in the market? Like what are people going to do? Nobody's going to be able to buy anything. They're shutting things down. It's actually home ownership increased, right? And we'll get the home sales in a few minutes about there, but it's actually creeping back up. Now, yeah, one- I got a question. Yeah. So there, I mean, that's only, I'm just looking at the numbers and I'm like, that's only a 3% difference. Is that how, it, to me, I'm just like, oh, 3%, that's hard, that's nothing. But what does that actually, is, well, that, does that even, is 3% actually- significant. Yeah. So if you take on the fact that there's about 5.6 to 6 million homes that'll sell this year, that's 150 to 180,000 homes that didn't sell um, or that are now people are coming to the market wanting those homes. So that's what's one of the things that's actually contributing to the fact that there is su a supply issue. And we'll talk about that in a second, but more people want homes than ever. And think about it, I mean, 150 to $200,000, $250,000 more homes that people want on top of everything. Mm -hmm. That is what people are feeling a little bit on the fact that there is an inventory because there's this new market that's emerging and that is first time home buyers. And I think that's really critical is um, in, in 2020, by the way, 40% of all purchases were first time home buyers. We haven't seen a stat like that since basically the tax credit that, that started coming out for first time home buyers. And I think if you think about this from a, a, a just kind of how you live perspective, well, let me just give this. And so in 2004, home ownership again was, it was 69%. In 2020, it was 60, almost 66%. So it went down and it's kind of creeping back up. I think that when you think about 2009, 10 and 11, when the economy was really hurting there during that period of time, a lot of kind of, you know, 20 year olds, they just, they just said, Hey, you know what? I'm not really looking for real estate right now. The market just crashed. They don't know anything, right? They're going to go rent. They're going to go live their life. They want to have live mobility, with their, live with, live their, with parents. their parents, right? But then what I think is really fascinating, and I think this is what started happening over the last couple of years, even before COVID people wake up and they're 31 and all of a sudden they bought a some of their friends, you know, 50% of their friends bought homes in their early twenties. And then all of a sudden they sold their home and they bought a house that they couldn't really afford based on their job, but they had so much appreciation gain in their house that they went out and said, Hey, how, how did you afford to buy that house? And they go, well, I made $200,000 in my home. And I was able to use that to put down in this next home. And so then all these, these people that didn't own homes woke up and go, well, hold on. Like I want to get, I want that appreciation. 
And so, because we saw so much appreciation, if people bought a house 10 years ago, right. Or even five years ago or eight years, even a year ago at this point. Right. Yeah. And they held on to that. So people that have saying that they bought a house in their twenties, right. Or even early thirties. Now all of a sudden they're upgrading their house. They're using all this equity that's in their house to basically go out there and buy their next property. And their friends are looking over and going, Hey, you know, I didn't get that appreciation. So now all this kind of this scramble, if you will, in lifestyles playing into it to go out there and want to own your own home, right? So that home ownership is increasing. I think what's driving that is that 40% of all home purchases are first time home buyers. By the yeah, way, isn't it, it a little bit generational too? I, I yeah. like there's a huge generation of millennials who are now becoming first time home buyers. And I just, I think that there's, that's just a large generation yeah. as well. Yeah. So I think again, so you're, you're seeing why all of a sudden this new group of homeownership of millennials or first time home buyers want to come in there further taxing the fact that we have no inventory. So right. you're starting to see why some of these things are happening because home ownership is rising as well too. Um, there's another thing that people look at in home ownership, which is the uh, household formation. So the other thing mm -hmm. with this is, is like Hallie said earlier, in 2008, 9, 10, 11, a lot of people went and they combined, they either went and lived with their parents or grandparents, or they got rooms together, right? They went and said, hey, why don't for the next four or five years, we just rent a place together and maybe they had ambition to do something, but they really, they still lived in an apartment and they rented a room or whatever it was. Now, when you start to see household formation start to occur, it's three people that are living in a house they don't change areas, but they just, they said, Hey, you know what? I'm going to go get my own place. So now there's three people in the current location and only one of them is going to stay in the house and two of them are going to go out and get their own. So that's why you're also, that's spurring that 40% first time home buyers. Cause they've been renting and they woke up and said, I'm much more introverted. I'm sick of dealing with you guys. Like I want my own space. Mm -hmm. And that's what's spurring a lot of these things right now. Right. Is like, okay, now that's why home buyers and first time home buyers are up because people are now waking up and saying, I want to get depreciation and I'm sick, sick of living with a roommate. Right. Especially when they're all working from home. <laughs> it was different when real estate was a, was a jump pad. I always think like real estate for a lot, for like a while, I think almost like the last decade was like a utilitarian pad. Right. It was like people, families, people got into this. Like my house was just like this place that I just like a locker room. Mm -hmm. Right. You know what I mean? Like it was just like a, I go yeah. home, like it's my, my furniture is there. My TV's there. Like our, our clothes are there. But how much time are you, but really how much time spending, are you spending there? there? We're grabbing this and we're off to races to do seven activities in three days. Or right? you're back at the office working for 10 or 11 hours. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Your office doing that. You're back at home. You're doing activities. You're trying to go out party. You just, you're not, you just, your home became a utilitarian place. Well, when COVID started happening and, and even towards 2019, people started waking up and started saying, Hey, you know what? maybe it's time I want to do something different. And then COVID, I think just accelerated that trend, which that then spurred these first time home buyers to start raising their hand and going out there and saying, Hey, you know, uh, I, I want to buy a house too. I want this appreciation and I want a different quality of life and I'm going to be working from home. So I don't want to stare at my roommate. Right. Mm -hmm. And this one, I'm sick of cleaning up their messes. <laughs> just one of those, one of those type of things. So I think that's, that's important for people to understand why home ownership is, is rising. Cause that, um, household formation and some of the other things there, home sales, Big question in everyone's mind. I think one of the biggest um, mis discrepancies out there that people are misunderstood is that people think that there's no houses to sell. And actually, that's not what's occurring. So, for instance, in 2010, there was 4.3 million homes that sold that year. 4.3 million does not include new construction. Okay. Does not include apartments, new apartments that are built in rents, right? So it doesn't include those. It's not rentals. It's just not rentals. It's just existing home sales. Okay. So existing home sales, not new construction, existing home sales. Important to understand that. So um, 2010, 4.3 million, right? 2019, 5.3 million. 2020, 5.6 million. So before COVID in 2019, there was, there's 5.3 million homes that sold in 2020 during COVID, there was 300,000 more homes sold. Mm. So it's not that there was actually, I try to explain this to people. It's not that there was actually a lack of homes, just demand has increased so much. Right. So, it, and that's why it feels like there's no inventory out there or it, people saying there's no houses to sell. That's true to an extent, but not when you look at history, right? In 20, by the way, in, in 2005, there were seven plus million homes. That was the highest number that we've seen. Seven million homes sold in 2005. So after that stop, uh, it was 2006, seven, eight started declining. Then it just dropped dramatically, you know, up until again, 2010, it was in the low fours, the lowest number that was there. And then it's been climbing back up. 
I believe at the end of 2020, you're going to see this number or 2021, you're going to see this number into the low sixes. So this is due to why people say there's no homes to buy or there's nothing on the market is due to the increase in demand. And then I would also, I also, the question that comes to mind for me is, and also the new con, new construction has slowed or, mm-hmm. or new construct, new home starts has slowed, but you're saying this number does not actually even have anything to exactly. do with new construction. This purely is probably is demand. Driven. Yeah. And I mean, new construction helps with demand. So it, it, it cools the demand down a little bit, which we'll get to new construction in a second. But I think just specifically talking about existing home sales, it increased in 2020. So it's not that there was actually less homes for sale. There was actually more homes for sale in it's 2020. Just more, buy- more buyers. Just more buyers. Yeah. So I think people just need to understand that just showing like the demand that's there. I think people go, oh, there's just no homes for sale. That's why we're bidding on everything. That's actually wrong. That's not what the data shows at all. There's more homes that are actually for sale last year than there was in 2019. And there's actually more home sale. And the other thing is there's a lot of off-market stuff too that like may not get reported on here that I've never seen off-market like it is now, right? And those type of things. So anyways, I just want people listening to understand that home sales actually increased Increase. last year and not necessarily decreased um, from there. Um, and again, I think that we will see 2020 in the low sixes, if not into mid sixes, depending on how things have. And we'll talk about you know the bubble uh, in a few minutes here. Um, housing inventory. So let's just look at that, right? Because again, we talked about number of home sales actually increased, but what does the inventory actually looks like? Just to understand this, a balanced market in terms of inventory. So inventory basically um, represents the, if let's say there was 300 homes that are on the market in this month. If nothing new came on the market, how long would it take to liquidate the current amount of homes that are on the market, right? That's kind of what inventory is measured based on. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So nothing new coming on the market, right? How long would it take to liquidate and sell basically all of the product that's currently on the market, right? And that's kind of what inventory and a months balanced looks like. market would, those 300 homes would take six months to liquidate. Exactly. So yes, okay. exactly. In a balanced market, basically it's not a buyer's market. It's not a seller's market. It would take about six months, right? Mm-hmm. The thing I think it's important to, to mention here too, whether you're in real estate or is paying attention to this, there's very few times that we're in a balanced market. It's one way or the other. Right. It's always, it's actually like life but to a certain it's extent. it's a little bit more close to the Yeah, the absolutely. Middle, the median. It is. But most of the time we're not in this balanced market. We're either, right. I mean, and for five or seven years after 2006, we were in a buyer's market galore for a long period of time. Then it kind of went a little bit more to balance. Now it's on the other side. So you can see these big cycles, how they play. So in, in 2020, the, it was 3.1 months of inventory. Yes. And what does that mean? Seller's market. It's yeah. It's a right. massive so seller's market. If it's below yeah. six months, it's sellers. And if it's above six months, yes. it's buyer's market. Yes. It's interesting to see too is, is um, what's fascinating about if you look at some of these graphs, typically in December, uh, in housing inventory increases December and January, meaning that people, less people are buying. So the inventory kind of increases last year it dropped. So in December last year, we were as low as 1.9 months inventory in the single month of December. It's crazy. In historic past decades, if you look at December and January, those numbers, whatever the number is typically holding throughout the year, actually increases. Even in really good markets, it just increases. And this year, 2020 going to 2021, it decreased. It went to as low as 1.9 months. Remember, and that's the, that's the median. So there's many markets as people listening to this, you know, if you're buying a house, trying to sell a house or an agent or a loan officer, you're seeing that there's like a weak inventory, right? Yes. And so it's certain markets in different places. It's even less than that. That's just kind of the average there. uh, A lot of those places, but that's people just remember that a housing inventory. So two things to take away from housing inventory. Number one, sales actually increased last year. So there's more houses available than the year before, right? Um, and housing inventory dropped um, to about 3.1 overall, but in the last quarter, it dramatically dropped. And that's why we're continuing to feel this pressure. Which basically just means that all those home sales that are happening are just happening much faster. Yes, right? exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's there's buyers just consume it up, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. and they just can't. It was like housing products. It was like, uh, you know, it's like two by fours right now in a lumber yard. Right? Like they're just gone. The minute they show up there, there's yeah. more people that want to buy them. It's crazy. Yeah. No, What's the product way. that um, typically like decks and stuff are made out of? What's that? You mean pressure treated? Yeah, pressure treated yeah. lumber. Yeah. I don't know what the, the typical price on that is, but we, over this past summer, built a huge deck in our backyard and 
they were like, first of all, they couldn't get any pressure treated lumber. And yeah. then second of all, we ended up building it out of cedar, cedar. Yeah. because they're like, yeah. it's literally the same yeah. price, yeah. which yeah. isn't typical. No, cedar is usually a much higher, yeah, much more expensive, and much more expensive because yeah. the weather's better. Yes. Yeah. And pressure treated is just like the kind of the, the, what you put down as a foundation. And then yeah. typically a lot of times you can either stand it or you put other, you know, you yeah, build like the foundation on structure it, yeah. on it. You put other, like a track or something on that. Uh, yeah. on it but yeah it's it's pretty fascinating to see that it's we'll, crazy, we'll yeah. jump into that into yeah. housing in a second um all right so let's jump into mortgage rates right because it's a big thing here um so what is it what is mortgage rates and i want to kind of explain the relationship um in the housing market with mortgage rates as well too so let's just look at this um mortgage rates dropped to really really lows in 2020 and they're really expected to remain low throughout 2021 again that's why i started with inflation because as the federal reserve looks at this and says inflation is in check we're going to hold interest rates remember when inflation starts to increase beyond what they feel is that they can keep in check, they start raising interest rates. And the reason why they raise interest rates, remember, they raise interest rates not just for home purchases. So people forget, it's not just, in fact, raising interest rates isn't actually directly tied to uh, mortgage insurance. It's an inverse relationships with bonds. That's a separate conversation. So just, just remember, though, an increase in mortgage or the Fed rate, which is what other banks charge other banks to lend money. So if it's at 2%, that means that your local credit union that you shop with is, is partnering up with Chase and they're going to lend money to Chase. They get paid 2% to lend money to Chase. So then that's how pricing for like your, your car loans, boats, credit cards, all these things are, are based off of like the Fed rate, a lot of things, right? They're variable rates. They based off of what it is, especially if you're in commercial world or construction, a lot of stuff's based on that. So let's not get too far down in there, but just understand that a little bit of what, what the Fed rate means. So anyways, mortgage rates in terms of, as it relates to housing, were as low as 2.72%. I've even seen some 30 year, that was average. I saw some as, as low as you know, certain credit types that was like 2.5%, um, which is just crazy uh, low interest rates. And uh, um, as 2020, 2021 average, by the way, was 3.18%, which is higher than 2020. What I think is important that I want people to take away though, is because this is where, let's just get to kind of the storytelling here. People go and say, hey, I want to, housing prices are high. Yes, I agree they're high. You know what? I'm going to wait for them to come back down and then I'm going to buy in a year or two. And so I always say to people, I say, well, hey, hold on. Have you looked at the whole picture? Because the whole picture is if interest rates rise, it may make that what you just waited for for two years more expensive for you. Because most people, when they're, unless they're paying cash, when they're looking at a house to buy, what are they looking at? Monthly payment. Exactly. They're looking at what their monthly payment is. And so that is the biggest contributor factor besides actually the house price, right? I mean, if you million versus 10 million, you're gonna have a bigger principal payment, but most people are, it's that regulation of interest rates. So for instance, if every 1% increase, right? A 1% increase in mortgage rates. So it goes from three to 4% increase the cost of your house by 10%. Increase the cost of your monthly payments? Monthly payment, yeah. And okay. in the end, it's just a monthly payment, right? Increase that by 10%. So if mortgage rates go from basically, you know, two and a half, two point seven 2.7 to 4.5, which is not, was a couple of years ago. And remember in January, 2019, we were at four and a half percent. People forget about that. It's like, it was that long ago. Two years ago, we were at four and a half percent. And then it steadily declined since then. But from basically, you know, you look over the last kind of like since the last kind of seven or eight years, it's hovered pretty much around 4%. 4% yeah. And so it's higher. So where are we going to end up? Right. And so if it goes up, you know, one and a half to 2% more right in there, it's going to cost you 20% more to, for your payment, which may price you out of the house that you could buy now. Right. Or maybe it's just even, even equal, but you now stayed in the place instead of buying something now. But most likely it'll end up costing you more money if these interest rates rise. And we don't have a golden crystal ball, but you know, so I just want people to, to understand the, the, in, the relationship in interest rates and how much it impacts. So again, the, the rule of thumb is 1% equals 10% of the, of the payment or the cost, right? Um, for it. But in just understanding that 4.5% was two years ago, right? We, I mean, we certainly aren't seeing interest rates like they were in the 80s, which is like 17% or things like that. Um, but we are, we are dramatically low right now for interest rates. So now we're going to switch over to home prices, right? Um, and again, thanks for hanging with us again. Just 
just start to get an understanding of all this stuff. You can listen to this, this multiple signs or just kind of listen to certain sections if you want to. What are home prices though? So the median home price rose from 271,000 in 2019 to 297,000 in 2020. It's a 9% gain. So 9% gain, by the way. The 30 year average, by the way, is what? 4%. 2019 increase was 4.8% before COVID, right? Then COVID hit and then all of a sudden housing went up almost 10%. So, I mean, yeah, doubled the 30 year. It did. And one of the things that I, that I want people to take away from this is if you actually look in January, right, of 20, basically of January of 2020, interest rates were at about 3.6%, right? And in January, 2020, the median home price was 266. So as interest rates dropped from 3.6 to 2.6% over last year, what did housing prices do? They grew by 10%. Oh, they grew by almost the same amount as interest rates dropped. Dropped. Yeah, I know. I even got that on my own. Yeah, you did. (laughs) See? Yeah. And so you can see how all these levers can kind of play all these things into it. So then what does that mean? Does that mean that... The, the, my monthly payment would literally be exactly the same. Essentially, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying is if we see that, so Even as- Even though I get scared by, oh my God, yes. this home is, you know, $100,000 more than um, what it would have been last year. Money's never been cheaper. Yeah. Money to borrow has never been cheaper in greater terms. So it's, you look at that. So the housing prices actually increased to the exact, almost to the same degree as mortgage rates have dropped because people regulate based on household payments and they're not really paying attention. Yes. I understand they're paying attention to the house. They're not going to go buy a $5 million home if they have a 500, but if they're at 500 and they can have the same, a comfortable payment to go to 700, they're going to go to 700. If their payment, they say, Hey, I can afford $2,500 instead of buying a $500,000 house, which then makes their payment like 1900. (laughs) What do most people do? They say, I can afford 2,500, which is fine. And they go and say, well, now I can get a $700,000 home for for a $2,500 payment. Awesome. I'm going to go do that. So that's why that's, it's kind of artificially pushing up prices in houses, which I think is pretty fascinating from this, from this as well too. You know, and if you ever think about um, whether or not real estate is a bad or a good investment, you know, (laughs) go talk to, you know, if you're depending on the age you are, if you bought a home 20, 30 years ago, let me, let me ask you, how much would you like to have that house for right now? Right? Like you, you may have paid a hundred thousand dollars for a house. How much do you think you could sell for right now? I even just look at my, my own house, which I bought in 2011, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and we probably have approximately 250,000 of equity yeah. in that. In, I'm a, like, in a decade. Yeah. Which I think is not bad. It's not bad. That's amazing. Yeah. And remember that's, that's also why this new home buyers are going up, you're young and people are going, wow, you've got $250,000. I know you don't go share that all the time, but people are like, oh, you have all this equity house and they don't. And so they're going, I need to get in the market. I want to get in the housing market. And again, that's what's fueling up these new buyers as well too. So you can see how people- It does make me think about buying a different yes. house, of course, but um, there are no houses to buy. Well, that's not true. <laughs> I know. But that's the mentality though, because people say, that, but it is, it is true to an extent. I it understand is. what you're saying, yes. but there's actually houses out there. That's why you have to work with a real estate professional who is not, you know, who's doing the, you know, the research and going off market properties to find these things yeah, to locate as a, as a fiduciary responsibility to your buyer, you're going to find out anything you can. And there's a lot of off market properties happening right now, yeah. more than I've ever seen actually. Because in, I know I could sell career. my house like probably in about a week. You probably sell in five hours. Probably five hours. Yeah. I'm sure that our team here would have a buyer yes. for it at whatever price like you want it. Right now. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what's, what's fascinating is like, I, I even think about, uh, you know, my parents for some are the house that I grew up in actually came up for sale. Oh really? Yeah. It was That's pretty interesting. interesting. I, I was trying to buy it. And, uh, but they paid, I show, I sent it to my parents a couple of days ago and I said, look at this funny memories. And by the way, I used to like, there was a, we li- we grew up in a, it was a 1975 ranch. Right. And it was, I don't know, maybe 800 square feet in the first floor and a finished basement. That's what I grew up in. And my bet, my, my mom was telling me like my bedroom when I grew up, couldn't shut the door because it wasn't even big enough to have a twin bed in there. That's kind of what I grew up in. Yeah. Right. Um, and my dad put a small addition on the back to do it. But I used to think that was like the biggest house that like goes, it was great. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm looking at it now and it's, it's interesting to look at, but, um, they paid $24,000 a house and it was listed for 333,000. Oh, wow. So I'm like, there's nobody that bought a house 20 or 30 years ago, 10 years ago that wasn't, isn't going, I wish I didn't sell that. Right. And that's why it's important to look like there's all real estate. It's never about making a bad investment. It's about how long can you hold on to it? And so if you make a bad investment, 
yeah, you may have to wait 10 years to, to get your investment back out of there, but it always comes around. As an example, right, in 89, the is $94,000 the average house. Home price, yeah. mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting, right? 89, yeah. $94,000 the average house. At the end of 2020, it was 317000 Right, that's like the kind of line trajectory from what it was. It actually ended at two ninety seven, but it's it's projected to be at three seventeen. So isn't that fascinating? So it's never real estate's never a bad investment. So people go, should I buy now? I go, if you're trying to flip, that's different. Now those are different metrics, right? Yeah. If you're trying to flip a house, that's a different whole different scene, and you need to be have a different look. Right, because that was actually my question. So let's so in this past year, the home prices increased by about ten percent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if I bought a home now. Would I, in a couple of years, yeah, I would like I wouldn't have as much equity because the homes aren't going to keep increasing by ten percent. Well, I think this year they might, and we'll get to that in a second. But but yes, I mean if it's if it's not, then it may it may contract. Remember, it's very back to this four percent. It may back to four percent, but still four percent tax free. Yeah, right. Because you're not taxed on capital gains if you stay in your house for more than two hundred and fifty. You know, if you stay in your house for more than two years you're not taxed as a household income up to $500,000. Right. So you can make a $500,000 gain over 10 years if you live in as your primary residence and you qualify for it tax-free. That's like making $750,000, $800,000. So it's just, it provides a different wealth there. Um, and again, just, you know, just understand home prices and the appreciation of what they've done. You know, really, we haven't really seen negative appreciation. The only time we saw negative appreciation for really the last 30 years was in, you know, 06, 07, 08, 09. That's really the only time we've actually ever seen it. And then the interesting thing about it, when we saw negative appreciation, it, it peaked at negative 13% approximately in 2009, but by 2013, it increased 12%. Right. So it's like, it, it went down 13%, but it increased 12% in 2012. So again, that's why I'm saying it's like, we're never in this even market. It's always counterbalancing itself. That's just what market cycles like the Dow, right? <laughs> so we should do in your life, counterbalancing. Not the de- not the. Dow Jones, Jones. The, the Dow. The, yes. Yes. The, 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 the middle, middle way. way. <laughs> exactly. Um, affordability real quick, you know, affordability is, um, is how much of people's income goes to paying their principal and interest amount. And right now that's at about 16%. So the, the 2020 affordability was 16% of people's income actually went to, uh, paying their principal and interest, which by the way, um, is one of the lowest numbers that we've seen in a long time. And it stayed like this since basically 2012, right? 2012 to 2020, it's hovered between 14 and 16%. Um, it dropped as low as 13% kind of after that, you know, in 2011 or so, but look at what's crazy is from 19, from, from basically 1970 to essentially, you know, 2006, when the, before the market crashed, it was in the twenties. So again, what is the, like, what is a good target of what people should be spending a percent for their household income? Well, I mean, I mean, if you're under 20%, I mean, it's just, so if you make a hundred thousand dollars, 20,000 is going to principal and interest. Mm-hmm. I think you want to get that number as low as you can. Right. Um, that's why affordability is, is so low because what's affordability driven on interest rates, right? Interest rates in, in wage growth. So the more money consumers make. So what happened last year in 2020 incomes rose 10% interest rates dropped made everything affordable. That's why we have to watch out for inflation because that's, that's part of it. But remember that that's what, that's where affordability comes from. But just, just take away that affordability is, is holding really holding steady around that 15, 16% right now. Now what happens when interest rates go up, that affordability starts to increase now from 16 goes to 20%. And that's what slows the economy down. That's why we're paying attention to a lot of that. I think another uh, big thing, uh, two more things to an- before we answer the question about the bubble, distress sales, just one thing to take away from this. Basically, there are very few distress sales right now. 2018, 2019, and 2020 have been 1% or less distress sales. So last three years been less than 1% of foreclosures or short sales. A distressed sale just means that it's foreclosed on or short sales. And we're going to talk about why we're not going to see the, in the bubble question. But one of the things to mention around distressed sales is uh, banks are no longer looking to foreclose properties like they were back in 2007, eight, nine. We'll talk about that in a few minutes about what the impact is for that. But just understand that banks are not, they realize they made their mistakes there. And it caused a lot of banks a lot of business. It's much easier to actually work with somebody when somebody's distressed to go get an offer and actually 
get it outside and, and move on. Um, so distressed sales are there. Now there's obviously rather than the bank re yeah, grabbing it and taking six months and, yeah. and then selling it for less than what they could have gotten for an offer right now. It just, it, Got it. banks have kind of woke up to that. Um, now people say, yeah, there's just a lot of government programs and assistance certainly helping. There's no question about that. Um, but I think as, even as that expires, we may see that increase a little bit, which we'll pay attention to, but you know, two to 5% is not necessarily you know, in terms of all foreclosures and short sales. I mean, if you look, if you go back to 2008, it was basically 40% of houses were distressed, right? Yeah. Then it dropped to basically 32%. And by 2012, it was 24%. And then from 2013 on that hovered around, you know, 10% approximately and has been dropping every time. So if we even get up to 3% distressed sales, it's not a huge number. Right. right. It's, and there's a, there's, and there's always going to be a certain number of distressed sales. Um, and hopefully banks could work there. New home construction. Let's talk about that. Right. We talked about two by fours, how expensive it is. Obviously with a construction company, I can tell you how expensive it is to build houses and labor shortages. So what I think is really fascinating about this is, um, basically in 2007, 2006 and 2007, when the real estate market dropped, it wiped out this crash, wiped out home builders across the country, big ones and a whole bunch of small ones. And all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of jobs were lost during these three to four years. And remember what was going, what was actually doing really well during this time was oil. So what happened, a lot of those labor jobs in the construction industry, everyone jumped ship and went to labor, to oil. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we lost hundreds of thousands of these labor supply and they went to oil and they're not coming back. Right. For the most part. Um, and so that's why it was, that's why people hear about this labor shortage in there. So we do, we have and a labor shortage. I was gonna say, correct me if I'm wrong. It's not, it, it's not just kind of like general labor or I don't even know the titles, but like, um, I don't, like want, to say yeah, I don't yeah. want to say a contractor, but like maybe carpenter. a carpenter or something yeah. like that. It wasn't just that. It was actually skilled. skilled yeah, it was electricians that yeah. using modeling for computers. It was Plumbers, plumbing and heating. Yeah. It was engineers. It was carpenters. Um, it was tradesmen, right? It was yeah. all those type of, absolutely. It was all those people kind of jump ship because nobody was buying anything. Mm -hmm. And so what's fascinating is there was 2005, 2006, there was 1.7 million homes built new construction, 1.4 in 2006. And then by 2008, it dropped down to 400,000 basically, right? 400,000 new homes. And that 400 stayed that way until basically 2012, which is the first time we saw an increase really to over 500,000 new construction homes. And that's been growing steadily. Mm -hmm. However, I think one of the interesting stats that we can look at is, is look at it as a decade. So just know that we, we, the, the, in a healthy market, new construction sets the barometer for pricing. So what I mean by that is if somebody's going out there to buy a 500,000, they have $500,000 to spend, right, Hallie? And they want, and they have the option of buying a brand new house for 500,000 or an, an existing house for 500,000, they're most likely gonna buy the brand new house, assuming that most of the things are the same. Mm -hmm. In the absence of new construction, there is no barometer to set existing prices, which is one of the reasons why we're seeing prices surge right now. It's one of the questions I want to answer. So you're seeing all these wage growth incomes up, interest rates are dropped, right? And, uh, and new construction is not there to hold the bar, which is pushing prices through the roof. Why does new construction set the, set the bar? Because if there's enough new construction that people, that they can fill supply, people are most naturally going to go buy the new construction. So if new construction is 500 grand, you're most likely not going to be able to sell your existing house for 550 if both are available. Got it. Okay. So in the absence of actual the product of new construction, there is nothing to gauge it to. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. So now all of a sudden there's no $500,000 new construction homes. So now I'm going over to the existing home and it's 550. I'll take it. <laughs> so there's no competition amongst the product. Got it. Okay. Um, and so that's one of the things they're doing. So if you look at actually, and I've been sharing this stat because I think it's fascinating, new home starts, right? Basically in a, in a, in a decade snapshot. And if you go back to the 1950s, so from 1950 to 1959, from 1960 to 1969, from 1970 to 1979, all the way up to 2009. So in each decade, each 10 years in those segments, there was on average, call it about 25 million home starts right? Mm -hmm. About 25 million home starts in that decade. It ended as, as high as it was from 2010 and 2009 with 27 million with of course, majority of those home starts happening in the first half of that decade, 2000, 2005, six, right? Now what's fascinating about all this. So again, the average decade going back to the 1950s had about 25 million home starts. 
in 2010 to 2019, there was 5.2 million home starts. That's about 22 million vacant opportunities to build based on past research, based well, on past data. Yeah, I was going to say what I think is so interesting too, is it's about the same home, a number of home starts that was in the thirties, yes. <laughs> which I'm like, think about the difference in our, you know, our population now between the thirties and now, and there's almost same, identical same home. Start. Yeah. yeah that's 1930 crazy. to 1939, there's 5.4 million homes started Yeah, in 2010 and 2009, there was 5.8. And what's crazy is that it, it had been a lot of that in the first part of the decade, 2010 to 2015, there was very few starts and it's been increasing closer to that million. You want about a, you know, a million, you know, plus per year, but it's, it's getting into that area. Wait, yeah. I was going to say, or yeah, about a million or 2 million. Well, a million new home starts and it's also like multifamily housing and just different yeah. things like that. But those are all starts, right? New construction starts. And, and I was going to just, not just say residential. That, yeah, that it's so low, but it, to your point, think about how much it still needs to catch up. Yeah, exactly. Like it's not, it's like, yeah, it's great that there's a million happening per year now, but there was a decade of yeah. nothing. Yeah. I actually think in 2021 will be a, a banner year. And then by 2022, because new construction is always about six months behind. Mm. I think 2022, you're going to see closer to like that 1.5 maybe even 2 million home stars as we want to try to build this new product line coming into, into the marketplace. Um, so again, that's just kind of new home starts. So just, that's why we're seeing the lack of new construction. And you can also factor that in as again, there's labor shortages, wood prices are gone through the roof right now. However, most of those are being taken by the consumer because there's increasing prices. Um, so if that, that needs to be regulated a little bit, so we're not sure exactly how that That'll play out, but just know that for the next couple of years, new construction is going to be very, very strong because there's been a lack of new construction over the last decade. You and need I, to fill that up. Yeah. And I was going to say, I still think the last article we read, which was maybe six months ago or so, I think I want to say there was well over a hundred thousand like construction jobs that still just needed to be filled. Yes. Like they could tomorrow hire a hundred, like 50,000 yeah, labor shortages. People. Yeah. yeah. Which to me just means. If anyone is interested in a great career opportunity, yes, exactly. they need to get into new construction right now. Yeah, exactly. I'll mention briefly before um, we ask, is this 2008 again? You know, commercial vacancy rates, when COVID first hit, I had like this doom and gloom scenario of commercial being like, like, you know, nothing, like, like, <laughs> like apocalypse or something. Plummeting and like yeah, exactly. vacant office buildings everywhere. Everywhere. Well, it's actually fascinating that the numbers don't show that right now. Um, 2020 retail vacancy increased half a basis point, 0.5% to 5.1%, almost minimal 4.5 to 5.1%, mm -hmm. not a ton given what's going on. Office increased, you know, from nine to 11.2. So basically a little less than 2% increase, but there was the highest increase was office, uh, um, uh, office, office which yeah. by the way, in 2011, the vacancy rate in office was 126 so we're still below mm -hmm. the last, the decade highs, right? I was going to say even all the way almost about 2014. Exactly. Yeah. Which is pretty crazy, huh? So again, the stats aren't showing that now. We don't know if PPP money is holding that together or how we see that rise. It'll be interesting over the next couple quarters to watch. But so right. far right now through at the end of 2020, we're not seeing the, the apocalypse happen in commercial vacancy that we thought we were actually going to, to see. Um, the allocation of where are people putting money? That's one of the things people ask, like, where do I put money? You know, what's fascinating is in 2020, the allocation of basically rich people, right? Of where they're putting their money. In 2006, 25% of people were putting their wealth in real estate. In 2020, 15% were, which I think is kind of fascinating. That number actually has gone down over the past couple of years. And the only reason why that has is because one number has surged, which is the stock market. So there's more wealth in the stock market because that number has grown by about 4% to 30% of people's wealth is in stock market. I also think this is a great opportunity for people and, and people are sitting on less cash. I was going to say four, it grew 4% from 2019, but it's actually about the same as 2006. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, so what's fascinating to see is this is just allocation. So if you're also thinking about this and like now might be the time, by the way, to redistribute some of your wealth back into real estate. Hang on one second. So, ca but cash and deposits went up a lot, 
Well, actually, it, it went, went down. down from 2019, but up from 2006. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. But it went down year over year. Yes. Because people took their they took money out of their cash accounts and put right. it in the stock market. Right, right. Okay. And that's why that stock market allocation grew to 30% of people's wealth. So that's just people were, you're asking where are people putting their, their money and their people are putting it in real estate and they're putting it in, uh, um, in stock market, which I still think is fascinating, by the way, that still 25% of people that have wealth are sitting on 25% in cash. It's yeah, not really the best use of your money. Relatively high. I, <laughs> yeah. I think, and yeah. it's been like that over in history, right? I mean, the lowest has got us 14%. Now it's 2006. That's because really people are putting in real estate too much <laughs> and then it crashed, but um, we're not experiencing that. So let's answer that question. Is this 2008 again? And there's four main points that I want to walk us through. Um, I do not think it is. Now I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not, this isn't like registered advice. <laughs> like this is just based on the data that we're seeing that I want to walk you guys through that today is there's four main points here that I want to, I want to explain why we do not feel based on the data that this is, the, is this is 2008 again. And, and if it were 2008 again, what would that even, what would that mean? Well, it would mean there'd be high distressed sales, new construction would plummet, jobs would be out of there. I mean, people would have 40% distressed homes. Remember we shared that yeah. earlier, mm-hmm. that 40% of homes that were selling were distressed. Now it's yeah. less than 1%. Right. So that's what it would look like, okay. right? The bubble would pop, right? That's what people are, you know, I saw this, that um, the search term for is real estate about to crash increased 2,500% over the last month on Google. Wow. Which is why we're doing this podcast. Yeah. So I can actually educate people on this. Um, but 2,500%, 20, it was actually 2,450% increase. This is going to crash. So that's why we're, we're actually bringing people the data so they can make their own decisions on these things. Number one, so what does the real estate outlook look like? Uh, in 2006, <laughs> uh, 2003, 4, 5, 6, if you wanted a loan and you had a pulse, you got one. I remember personally, now I wasn't making, I think when I went in there, I was at, I had a, in 2003, about my first piece of real estate in college as a junior, I closed on it when I, cause it was a new construction at an apartment building. I did a, a stated income, stated doc loan. Do you remember those? Maybe you don't. No. And basically you walked in there and the loan officer said, how much, how much money, you, what's this thing cost? Oh, it's 200,000. Great. How much do I need to show I make? Uh, $100,000. Do you make that? Sure. And just write it down. And, and then there was no, docu- there was no ver- documentation. Verification. They were just, they just yeah. basically they gave you money yeah. because there was so much bought into that real estate was never going to make an adjustment. So the, the reason why it's important to understand this though, is that people were highly leveraged. They were doing 80, 20 loans. Remember these things like stated income, stated docs, 80, 20, which is basically you, they're going to, the one bank's going to give you 80%. The other bank's going to give you 20%. So you're at hundred percent financing. So like you're doing all these and and no verification of things, right? They were maybe checking your employment once if they even did that, right? You paid a higher premium for these things, but people were like, oh, real estate's going up all this. I'll flip these things. So you had this, these lending standards were so loose, Mm. so loose. And then of course, as we know, um, when it crashed there, the CFPB consumer finance protection bureau was, was, uh, created from this, which basically what did they do? They went down, tighten the screws on lending. So they basically, what is it, all that means is if a lender wants to sell their, their product or their loan in the aftermarket, they have to have a tremendous amount more of documentation. So what did that do? It prevented lenders currently from doing any of the deals that they were doing before. Well, and I mean, from a consumer perspective, it in theory helped them not get themselves in a well, exactly bad right. situation. That's exactly, it's actually doing, it's actually protecting the, the CFPP is protecting the consumer from getting into mortgages they shouldn't be getting into. Right. That's what it means. So instead of like buy, like playing the lottery in real estate, you're you're and what we're also seeing is tremendous amount of equity being put down in houses. So basically, if you can afford the the house, and you know, even now, like lenders may call two or three times during the process to make sure you're still employed. Oh yeah, we get those calls. Exa- yeah, exa- yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and also um, they're calling the day before just to make sure it's there. Oh, yes. It's all part of that CBPF, right? It's yeah. just it's it's um, they're checking all of the verifications to ensure that you actually are, are still somebody who's qualified to have this mortgage. Right. And if you're qualified, you'd be able to get one. It's just, if you're not qualified, they're going to tell you and turn you around and reject you. So the lending standards have changed dramatically from what they were that led up to the crash of 2008. That's the biggest factor leading into this. There's no. And why the real estate market is not. Because everything was highly leveraged. Everything was highly leveraged. Now, I also like to explain it this way. It's saying, okay, let's just assume, you know, you could, in a normal market in 2018 or 19, you sell your house for 500,000. Now you sell for 700,000. Okay. You sell for 700, you get $200,000 more equity than you thought you were, but now you pay 900 for a new house. 
Okay. Let's just say it contracts a little bit for even in the next couple of years, it just needs to go down in whatever market you're in. Let's say it comes down to $800,000 you can sell it for now. And they go, well, I just lost $100,000 in my house. I go, did you really? Because you had $200,000 more than what you normally would have gotten from a year of this massive appreciation. And, and yet, so you, you're actually still up a hundred thousand. Mm. You follow the logic mm-hmm. there. Yeah. So it's just borrowed equity. You're using equity. You're putting the equity down in your house to get it down to a lower payment that you're comfortable with. You're locking the financial terms. If it comes down a little bit during that period of time and you had to sell, you're still up. And if you hold on to it, as we know, it'll increase past that. So it's a, it's a, so that's part of the lending standards really kind of protected us there from there. Number two, foreclosures. When the housing market crashed in 2007, 40% of the houses were distressed. And that was this massive sleep. So they, they pumped. The, the 2007, it was already a fleeting market. There's already a, a buyer's market. And then they pumped all of these foreclosures into the market, further exasperating the, the supply issue. That's what drove prices down. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's, a, that's a major thing to understand is how much distressed property came on the market. But the reason why we started with number one is the only reason why they were distressed is because they were highly leveraged, meaning they had a whole bunch of debt on the house. Now people are not highly leveraged in their cash or 50% loan to value or 75% loan to value and they're strong borrowers. And, and here's the other thing that I started to get into last time. Banks are in a completely different mode now. They don't want to go through a foreclosure process. They, cause that in the beginning, they're like, oh, we can write these off. We're going to foreclose you. Now what we're seeing, particularly local banks, they're going, you're in a foreclosure process. Can you go list it and get an offer? And let's try to clean this up for you. So they're much more willing to basically be sensible. Mm. Not everybody, I'm not saying, but a lot more is being a sensible about, Hey, I can't afford my house, but there's $200,000 in equity in it. And instead of, you know, it's amazing by the way, how many people don't realize how much equity they have in their home and they actually get foreclosed on. That's it's mind boggling to me. So if you know anybody in this situation, make sure you just let them know that. And they can go out there and they could sell their house, maybe even get some equity back and then be able to go out there and, you know, use it for whatever else they need to do into a more affordable place if they need to. But it's the, the foreclosures, the pump, the increase of foreclosures just flooded the market, further driving down prices, which then further exasperated foreclosures until we hit a, the rock, rock bottom. Then it started kind of building back up, which took a couple years to do that. Number three, and I talked about this already is the equity, which the equity is just the difference between what current market value is for your home and how much debt you have. So if you could sell your house for 500,000 and you currently took a mortgage out for 250, your equity in your home is $250,000, right? And that is an incentive to obviously stay in your house longer. You can afford more, your payments less because the more equity you have in there. And it's just a big cushion. You know, it's really interesting. Actually in 2007, when the, when the foreclosure market flooded everything and, and, and hit hard, there was, I think, 9 million homeowners in distress, um, 9 million homeowners in distress, $7 billion of equity was wiped away in like 18 months. $7 billion was, of equity was wiped away. So those people had just been able to sell instead. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it wiped a lot of equity away because they were, they were banking on this future growth. And then when it wiped that equity away from their house, it basically made them go into foreclosure, which now there's so much more equity in people's houses than ever before in history, which gives them this big cushion. So if things get tight and they need to sell, they can sell and not have to go through a foreclosure process. So that's why it's going to keep foreclosures to a minimum. Plus the banks who are, who are less inclined to go through that process in the first place. Okay. Yeah. And then appreciation. So obviously we saw 9% appreciation higher in some markets. I mean, everyone should look in your local market and talk to a real, you know, local real estate professional. Um, but appreciation is continuing to go through. Um, we believe that if we're, if we're, if rates remain low, and lending institutes don't start being creative in their way of getting people in there, that we're going to continue to see a, a appreciation for the probably the next three or four or five months. And then maybe it starts to slow down towards the end of the quarter. I also think that as consumers surge in, in spending like trips and vacations, that the real estate market will settle. And I think that's important for us because I think it will. I think it'll be very strong, but I think it'll start to settle and find its groove. You know, even things like anecdotal evidence, like we're starting to see some price reductions in houses again, right? Because we have, you know, in 30 locations, we can see this from a national level. Not all of them, but you're starting to see just a little bit. And those are the kind of the signs that it starts to just round itself out. And I think by the end of the year, it'll still be appreciated, meaning their housing is still going to appreciate what that looks like. We're not a hundred percent sure. Um, maybe somewhere between five and ten percent. If construction suffers, meaning that we don't get enough construction, we could see that number drive up. 
we may see 10% appreciation again if we can't build enough houses. If we can build enough houses, interest rates remain low and banks, you know, continue to lend to people who can afford the houses, we're going to be in a very strong market for the rest of this year and into 2022. Um, so we can't really get past necessarily 2022, but I think we're going to have a very strong demand um, for uh, residential real estate and for investors and for second homes. A lot of people are looking at second homes now with remote work that they're doing that. So that's increasing buyers, which I think is going to continue, by the way, for the next 18 months as well. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens. I believe that inventory will, will need to increase this year if, if home price gains are going to stay relatively low, right? If they are, we need to increase that from housing. Um, it's affordability, by the way, is gonna, you're going to hear this really going on in the news constantly. It's going to be a common topic. It already is, but it's going to be major headlines, particularly in 2021, as COVID starts to kind of settle down, which already started is. You're starting to see different news headlines come in there. You're going to see it's all going to be pointed to housing. Right. You're already seeing that for new construction. You're seeing that in other things that are there. So it's going to be interesting to see how all that kind of plays out um, in there as well, too. Uh, so in the end, I do not. This is why we do not believe it's 2008 again um, for all these different reasons. Again, we'll have all of these slides for you and some some slides for you guys. You can go to the show notes. You can grab them. Hope this was informative for you guys. Um, I know it was for us to kind of put these together for our team. So thanks for hanging out with us today. So at the end of the day, um, if you are like, hey, I want more information, we have locations in, you know, 33 different places in the United States. Certainly reach out to us. Um, we can connect you with a real estate professional. You know, we, I consider real estate agents as people who manage and help people with their wealth because that's what you're doing. It's one of their biggest assets. So make sure we, you're connected with somebody who's going to be a con consult, who's going to provide a consultation to you of what this looks like. Um, and again, if you're in the industry and you're looking for more of this, we have a lot of toolkits with our coaching companies. Um, you know, we have Achieve Freedom Coaching, which we'd love to set up with a, a free consultation. If you're like, hey, I want some more of this. Um, I, I need some more coaching. I want some more direction. You know, always playing out in that next market, what that looks like. So we're more than happy to provide you with a free consultation of what you could get um, by signing up and coaching with Chief Freedom Coaching.